0: providence ends up ordering sermons and texts as significant and appropriate times in the life of our church, in our own lives, and tonight in the time of year that we find ourselves in. I've entitled this sermon, What is Your Worth? Robin Leach, you know that name? Everyone knows that he has a, a name and a voice that will forever be associated with opulent Wealth. For years he's taken us places we could only imagine in his TV show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. That was said with too much gusto, Jim. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. You know what that that, that show makes us do? It makes us want more. Every day people tune into radio stations and televisions all around the country, listening for a series of numbers for their lotto tickets. The bigger the prize, the more tickets are bought. You want $30 million this afternoon, you can get it. I'll check. And the effect of thinking that way is we want more. Walk up and down the shopping mall, turn on your internet, browse any of the stores that are in your favorites section. Look at the most trendy, the most up-to-date stuff staring right at you. And the effect is we want more. You and your friends go for a walk at a leisurely pace with a nice cup of coffee down at the plaza, looking in all the windows, dipping in and out of stores, looking at this, trying on that, and the effect is we want more. And then your friend shows up at church or your house and says, I want to take you on a ride in this vehicle that has this most expensive scent. You do know that new car smell is the most expensive perfume you can buy, I think. And you sit in there and you smell and you see the cleanliness and you see the, the sharp lines of that car, and it makes you want more since you look at your old dilapidated, demolition, derby jalopy of a car. The reality is, all of us could think. For a few minutes and isolate things that we want. We want things, we want more. We're all chasing a bit of what we call the American dream, which the Bible calls materialism. Our want list is the most thought out and thorough part of our lives. We're adding to it with every catalog, every commercial, and every advertisement. I understand this. I, I have a problem with this. I, I never really know what I want until I walk into Cabela's and then I find out what I need or Shields or Bass Pro. I would venture to say that for most of us, the direction of a career, the choice of a major in college is mostly dictated by how much money can you make. I was sitting with a group of men the other day during a conversation. It was very enlightening. It was was godly. It was was well within the balance of Scripture. And it made me think, as I was talking subsequently to a group of pastors, two or three pastors who were sitting together... It was very different because in this one group, I was talking with a group of men who were, who were constantly thinking about money and how much money they could make. And it wasn't even bad. It was, they were using it for glory, the glory of God and things they wanted to do and, and ways they wanted to express their, their worship for Christ. It was a wonderful conversation. And then I was with a couple of pastors and we thought, making more money is never part of, of a pastor's conversation with other pastors. Hey, how much, do you get a bonus for the souls that you, you saved this week? Can you, how about baptisms? Do you get a bonus for baptisms? We don't get that. It did reintroduce me, though, in that discussion with how much we think about making and getting more. Let me say from the very beginning, making more and getting more isn't necessarily bad. We'll see in a minute that owning material things is not a bad thing. Material things owning us. Is the problem. We live in the most progressive and exciting time in history, and this great time brings great opportunity. You can basically think about this. You can basically, if you're clever, have anything you want, even if you don't have the money. Just charge it. Go ahead, spend now, worry later. That's the message of a world bent on wealth. A few years ago, when I was a college pastor out in California, I was handed a slip of paper that was given to a college freshman girl on her orientation walk around the campus at UCLA. It was a credit card application sent to her, given to her as she walked by uh, this stand of uh, MasterCard or whatever, and this is what it said. Quote, "'Free from parental rule at last.'" Now, all you need is money. Ka-ching. I didn't write that. That's in there. (laughs) Inside this is a lengthy, convincing marketing piece that read, Getting the credit you need to get get you through college is way easier than you think. In fact, it's almost a no-brainer. Just send in the invitation above or give us a call. If you qualify, the Associates of MasterCard will uh, be in your mailbox. The Associates MasterCard, rather, I guess that's the card, will be in your mailbox before you know it. Get 3% cash back on everything you charge. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just imagine 3% back on living expenses, textbooks, everything you want to buy with your associate's MasterCard including, MasterCard, including pizza. How cool is that? I just see the boardroom where these guys are riding this spiel. How cool is that? All you have to do is carry a balance from statement to statement to keep your account in good standing. Let me read that again. I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I didn't make that up. All you have to do is carry a balance from statement to statement to keep your, and keep your account in good standing. means you pay the minimum. And you get your 3% cash back on all your net purchases. That net is an important word. Just think of how much, how much college costs these days. Then figure out how much a 3% rebate would add up to. That's some serious cash, end quote. How gullible do you have to be? What we want, what we can get, what we might get, how much we can make are some of the most passionate parts of our lives. The opportunity, in fact, to be rich or at least richer than we are now has become the measuring rod in our culture for worth. What is your worth? People ask all the time, what's in your portfolio when we don't know what's in our spiritual portfolios? In the business world, one of the most often asked questions of both individuals and company is that, "What is your worth?" In other words, your worth as a person is based upon what you have. Think about that question. We even call it your net worth. So you're measuring what you're worth by a number and a bank. Think about that. Let me ask you a question. How much is enough? I love telling people that I make seven figures because I include the sense column. <laughs> How much is enough? What do you think it would take? What do you think it would really take to make you happy? It's interesting that the Lord put us here in this place in Ecclesiastes at the beginning of the most intensive shopping three weeks in The year. Let's hear what Solomon has to say about this issue of money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to begin at verse 8, and we're going to quickly scan and go through the whole chapter tonight, the rest of the chapter. Solomon says, Ecclesiastes 5 8, if you see oppression of the poor and a denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked. At this site, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivate the, cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. You have your pencil or your marker out. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he... Had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what advantage to him is, what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind throughout his life? He also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given for him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is... The gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What is this about? (laughs) Well, it's not the first time we've encountered the issue of money in Ecclesiastes. It won't be the last. But this passage really unveils the reality behind the riches more than I think any other in this book. Let's talk about Solomon for a minute. We talked about this at the very beginning of our study, which was a long time ago. I know with our every other Sunday night, it seems like it's sometimes troubling to, uh, it's a trouble to keep up with what we've said in the last few weeks or months. But Solomon had the right to speak with great authority on the issue of wealth. Now think about when this was. This was 10 centuries ago and 10,000, 10 centuries ago, that's right. He had an annual income of ten no excuse me twenty million dollars in equivalency today now, if you added that by what it 's worth today, it would be incalculable there 's there's no way to do it. when you do the math it 's just no way to create the equivalence with inflation. twenty million dollars, and that was then. By the way, that was annual. That was year after year. His home and his, the temple he built would make uh, the Hertz Castle look like a truck stop. You and I can't possibly fathom the money he had for The book of Kings, First Kings tells us that the streets were, was, he was so wealthy, the streets were, were like silver or gold. It was just like rocks In the business world, your worth is measured by your portfolio. This is a term that that we use to encompass what you own, your investments, what you're worth, and what assets you have. And here in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 to 20, Solomon describes for us the intangible contents of two portfolios. So if you're taking notes, we're going to have two outlines tonight. The first is the portfolio of wealth without God. And the second list is going to be the portfolio of wealth with God. Everything changes in verse 18. So from verses 8 to 17, it's the portfolio of wealth without God. Let's look at that first. Portfolio of wealth without God. Here is what's in that portfolio. Number one, oppression. Oppression. This is verses 8 and 9. If you see the oppression of the poor, the denial of justice and the righteous... And righteous in the province. And do not be shocked at the sight. <laughs> One official watches over another. And they're higher over them. After all a king who cultivates a field. has Is an advantage to the land. You say what is that talking about? It's a sad reality. But a rich man without God. Has uncontrolled influence and power. Over his stuff. His people and his wealth. The rich tend to be attorneys. Lawyers. Lawmakers politicians, the best educated, they own the most land, the most buildings, they own the most places to enjoy. In short, the rich become our leaders more often than not. Do they not? Leading the polls in a presidential race right now is the man who is incredibly wealthy. I've never seen anyone in my lifetime run for president who made $30,000 a year. In verse 8, it's the rich without God. They have a biblical ethic that they don't have a biblical ethic that they would adhere to. So they take advantage of the poor. That's the point. The poor can't do battle with their injustices because they're outmatched by the resources of the wealthy Officials over officials, you cannot beat the system. That's what he's saying. It's too big, it's too corrupt. Verse 9, don't be too critical of the system of the rich being in charge because the poor do get the benefit of some of the profits of the rich. The king does cultivate the land. It's just really blunt, bottom level common sense. It's a bad system, but we do inherit blessings from this bad system. And the issue in these first two verses is that that a rich man without God does not use or share his wealth to take care of those with less, typically. This is the ungodly rich man. In fact, many times he takes advantage of the poor, he oppresses them. That's a great reputation to have in your portfolio, isn't it? Oppression. The second in his portfolio, the wealth of a godly, the portfolio of a godless, ungodly man is this. Dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction, verse 10 ought to be taped to our mirror to look at and remember every morning of our short lives. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves in abundance with its income because it's it's Havel, it's vanity, it's steam of a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment. It's fleeting. It's gone. Note the word there, though, is the word love rather than possess. He who loves his money will not be satisfied with his money. It doesn't say he who possesses money. We'll see at the end of this passage. You can be a godly, wealthy person. Money is not the evil, it's the love of money. Does that remind you of First Timothy six ten? The love of money is the root. The source of so many kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Solomon's point is that money will never satisfy you. Someone has said, How much money does it take to satisfy you? He answered, Just a little bit more than I have. It's never enough. Now, a footnote, oh, as I said it a moment ago, there is nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having money. The Bible never indicts a person for having money, owning money, owning property, having a large portfolio, only for loving it. Owning it's not the problem. Loving it, according to Solomon, is the problem. And listen, you and I can reach a point where we feel like we never have enough Money and stuff will never satisfy. It can bring some temporary thrills, temporary happiness, but in the end, it only makes us want more. Be careful feeding your natural attraction to stuff and money. Here's a little test How do you know if you're in love with your money? How do you know if you love money? By looking at how much of it you give away and how much of it you hoard, by looking at how much it you spend how much of it you spend on yourself and how much of it you spend on others, by looking at how we do before the Lord with our money, this isn't the giving sermon, I guess it is in some sense, but it is a measurement of our our hearts. What is your heart like when you want to see someone have something? that they could never have or experience unless you provided it. I'll never forget this. uh, It was an incredible scene. Uh, We were at a a, a youth camp. It was a college retreat. And um, there there were three girls who had set their luggage down outside a hotel in San Diego. And the hustle and bustle of people... Uh, coming and going, their luggage was picked up and taken off. It was stolen. I didn't know it at the time, but I heard about it later. And I remember asking, Well, what are we going to do? Let's, let's see what he said. One of my interns said, Rick, don't worry about it. I said, Why? I said, There was a group of girls around them who, who instantly got together and said, We're going to take you down. They went down and bought them some clothes, they bought them toiletries, they got them ready for the weekend. It was that reflex in these girls' hearts that was so encouraging to me. They saw the need, they met it. And just, this is another sermon, but if you're, if you're constantly chasing debt, you'll never have the money to serve people like you want to. What's your portfolio if you're ungodly and you're wealthy or you're pursuing wealth? Oppression and dissatisfaction. Pretty good two starts, right? Number three, frustration. Frustration. Look at verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. <laughs> if you got stuff, you got wealth, people know it, you have a lot of friends. What is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Literally, the, the Hebrew is interesting. What, what advantage is it whether to see and experience it with their own eyes experientially? You, you wouldn't believe it unless you'd seen it. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. What is this? Having a lot of money, having a lot of things does not lead to happiness as much as it leads to frustration. That's Solomon's point. One of the main reasons is that it affects relationships. That's what's going on in verse 11. Wealth attracts human leeches who want to know you for what they can get out of you seems like the more you have, the more people have their hands in your pockets. Proverbs 19, verses 4 to 7. Listen to what Solomon says here. Wealth adds many friends. You'd think the same person wrote those two, wouldn't you? Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. Listen to that, Proverbs 19, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 6. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they're gone. In other words, wealth, the absence of wealth and the presence of wealth can stain and soil relationships. You know what's wonderful about the church is money shouldn't make any difference with our relationships. Our common bond is Jesus. And because of that, because he, remember our mission statement, we value Jesus above all else. If he is our treasure, then we all share a common treasure, right? Everything else is just temporal, superfluous doesn't last. Verse 12, there's a sad progression here. More money brings more people. More people bring more worries. More worries brings less sleep. Mark this. Riches don't bring ease from freedom. They bring frustration. The rich are always worrying about their stuff. This is the ungodly rich. Remember this. The ungodly rich are always worrying more about their stuff and the people who manage their stuff and trying to get rid of the people who want their stuff than they are living in the way God wants them to. Look at the first part of verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant. Whether he eats little or much. You know what that means? You remember those early days I, I hope this is the case now but I, I'll never forget I've talked to my son Luke about this who's um, working up on the roof with some about half our church I think there's nothing like working hard manually all day and being exhausted and knowing you made an honest wage and laying down it's just satisfying to work for your money one of the things that my parents unwittingly did to me and for me was that we didn't have a lot of money. This is not the, we were poor and we walked uphill in the snow both ways. We were poor and we walked uphill in the snow every way. It was, it was awful. We, <laughs> I remember there were times we had beans and cornbread you know, four or five times a week and I thought that was the, 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 the wealthiest thing. I love beans. To this day, beans and cornbread, not just any cornbread, not this sweet stuff, this jiffy stuff that you guys make. I'm talking about buttermilk cornbread made in a cast iron skillet that separates and is crunchy around the edges from the skillet and just comes apart and is brown. And you put that off in the bottom of that bean bowl, put the beans on top of that with a lather, not a slather, a lathering of butter. That's the, the meal of a king right there. I remember. Where was I going with that? <laughs> yeah, really hungry, thinking about that. What was I talking about before? So what now? Oh, the snow. We were poor, going always uphill both ways in the snow. That's not where I was going with that, Kimberly. <laughs> no, I remember um, that my my dad would uh, would talk to us about how much it was, how important it was that we knew that food wasn't free. And we would pray as simple as we could over those those cheap meals. and It meant a lot to me. I'm so thankful for what my parents did to me in college. And that was that they, they couldn't afford to help me pay for it. You'd study differently. Parents, here's a little parenting lesson 101. Your kid will study differently if they're paying for the class. Don't make it so easy for them. But that's another lesson. (laughs) Number four. You got oppression, dissatisfaction, frustration. What else is in this portfolio of an ungodly wealthy person? Number four. Desperation. Verses 13 through 17. Verse 13 says. This is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Your own hurt. Once you get what you want, there's always a certain desperation about your gain if you don't have God as your treasure. Solomon calls this a grievous evil, a tragic fact of life. It's the life of a miser who's accumulated his wealth only to sit and look at it selfishly and alone. Hoarded to his own hurt. Verse 14. Those when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he fathered a son and there was nothing to support him? What is this about? Solomon points out that riches are fragile and can only easily be lost through bad investments. He's going to tell us in a couple chapters, (laughs) this is really, it's it's tough to say. He says, you're going to spend your whole life making money and give it to somebody who didn't make it and who's going to blow it. Welcome to death. That's basically his message. Verses fifteen and sixteen. As he came, had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. With nothing, that's the point, it's the same phrases used in Job. I didn't come with anything, I'm not leaving with anything. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. That's talking obviously about death. This is also a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what advantage to him who toils for the wind? What is that advantage? Is there any advantage to him? It's the reality and the ultimate reality of life and wealth. You can't take it with you. Solomon is writing at the end of his life, looking at his own wealth and seeing that it will not follow him into his coffin. And even if it did, it would do him no good there. Did you see in the news uh, last week where they think they found the secret burial chamber of Nefertiti, the uh, in uh, um, uh, Tutankhamun's um, uh, uh, tomb in Egypt, they found the secret. They're probably going to break that open. They're going to find all sorts of treasures that she thought she could take with her into the afterlife. How's that worked out? Verse 17 is a picture of a desperate man. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Darkness is a picture of isolation and loneliness, vexation, sickness and anger. These are the products of a life spent in the pursuit of money. And death brings life into focus. It reminds us what is really important if your life is without God. The response is like this, man. It's desperation. You know the illustration, but it's an obvious one we have to point to. Howard Hughes he was the world's ultimate mystery. He was secretive, reclusive, enigmatic. For more than 15 years, no one could even say for certain he was alive, much less how he looked or behaved. Hughes was the, one of the wealthiest men in the world at that time with uh, destinies literally of thousands of people, perhaps even governments at his disposal. Yet he lived a sunless, joyless, half-lunatic life. In fact, in his later years, he fled from one resort hotel to another, Las Vegas, Nicaragua, Acapulco. His physical appearance became odder and odder. His straggly beard got longer and longer, hung down to his waist. His hair reached to the middle of his back. His fingernails were two inches long. His toenails hadn't been trimmed for so long. They resembled corkscrews. Hughes was married for 13 years to Jean Peters, one of the most beautiful women in the world at the time, but never in that time were the two ever seen together in public. No record of their ever having been photographed together. For a while, they occupied separate bungalows at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and back in that day, you can imagine this at $175 per day. And she later lived in an opulent and carefully guarded French Regency house atop a hill in Bel Air, making secretive and increasingly infrequent trips to be with Hughes, who was living in Las Vegas at the time. They were divorced, by the way, in 1970. I find this interesting. Hughes often said, quote, every man has his price or a guy like me couldn't exist, end quote. But no amount of money brought him satisfaction and the only people who knew him and were close to him had the absolute disgust for him and broke their silence about him after he died. Do you ever watch these shows, you know, the life and times of so-and-so? Follows these rock icons, these bands around and It's the same story. They get a lot of money, their life crashes, and they feel bad in the end and regret. How do you measure your true worth? Let me give you a statement that comes from a man most of you know, his name at least. Jim Elliott said, what do you have? that money can't buy and death can't take away. We usually know of other statements he said, but this is a good one. What do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? That's, that's the, the philosophy and question of a man who would give up his whole life and go die at the hands of the Alca Indians in Ecuador. What do you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away? That's how you measure your real worth. Now we come in verse 18 to the portfolio of wealth with God. We looked at the portfolio of an ungodly man without God who has wealth. What about the portfolio of wealth with God? This is interesting. He changes everything. The tone changes in verse 18. The first in this portfolio is happiness. Happiness. Verse 18 here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, good and fitting to eat and to drink. And to enjoy oneself in all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. For this is a reward or his reward. The key to this verse is in the phrase what God has given him. He understands that things are a gift from God. There's a happy reward, a very happy reward for those who see life as a gift from God's hand we're happy people things are in proper perspective when god is in the focus if you acknowledge god as the giver of life as the giver of things then you'll find happiness i love that you maybe if you read it it's a great little article it's not very long by john piper who says how to glorify god by drinking orange juice and what he does is he apparently he likes pulpy orange juice. And he describes this orange juice. When you read this article, you are going to want orange juice at the end of this thing. It's cold. It's delicious. It has pulp. It's almost like eating and drinking at the same time. And when you're thirsty and you drink it, it just fills every sense, the smell, the taste, the wonder of, of the glass being frosted. And he just describes this whole thing. And he says, you ought to be able to do that as a Christian and say, thank you, God, for inventing oranges that will one day be squeezed into this juice and the pulp, which has texture. And you, he describes this whole thing and says, only a Christian can look at God and say, thank you for that. You can glorify God by that. You can glorify God with your wealth, with your bank accounts, with, with your gold and silver and IRA and you name it. You can glorify God with that if you know that it's a gift of God, owned by God, and you will not leave your world with it. What God has given him, look at it right in the text. What God has given him, you're happy. Number two, blessing. So in the portfolio of a wealth with, of wealth with God, you have happiness. Number two, you have blessing, verse 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Now let's pair that back with what he said, to eat and to drink, and to enjoy oneself. You know what he's saying? Have a good meal and thank God for it. Have a good meal with friends and thank God for them. Work hard, enjoy what you're given. It's okay to have things as long as things don't have you. How do you know if they have you? Well, I found that out a little earlier this afternoon, when my car had been parked in the garage, and it was parked in a way very graciously by someone—it's not my wife—and it was next to the lawnmower. And when I say next to the lawnmower, I mean touching the lawnmower. And when I backed it out, I kind of scratched against that, and I was frustrated by that. At that point, I was not owning my Honda Odyssey. My Honda Odyssey had quite ownership of me, and I had to repent in some significant ways. What brings you happiness? What brings you life? What bothers you if it's, if it's gone? I have a friend. He's very wealthy. He does well. You would never know that if you're around him. And I remember uh, he had lost something very valuable. And I I was troubled by this. And I said, man, are you okay? He said, "That's just money. It's just money. And I thought about that. He wasn't just saying that. He really meant, it's it's just money. He says, it's just numbers in a bank. It's just potential. I should be using my potential for the Lord. It's a great lesson. These verses... Show that there's actually joy in the work, by the way, too. Look at verse 19 again. For every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his, what? Labor and work. Godly people enjoy their work because they do it not as eye service to men, Paul said, but as service to God. By the way, if you see that all you have is a gift from God. Giving it away is never a difficulty. Remember that what you have is not yours. It is God's. The money you have is not yours. It too is God's. And that will affect, affect the way we shop, the way we give, the way we spend, the way we save. It affects everything. Do we understand it's a blessing of God? It's God's He even looks at a man who owned a lot of cattle and says, the cattle on a thousand hills, mine. Number three. <laughs> Lastly, contentment. Contentment. I mean, you think about those two lists. Listen to this one. Happiness, blessing, and contentment. That, that's a great list. If you have wealth, and you have wealth under the ownership of God for he will not consider the years of his life because god keeps them keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart so refreshing he's saying is your worth and happiness found in god if it is then life is not a burden you have the most sought after commodity on the planet you are content seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, Matthew six thirty three says. It's interesting when you read what all these things are. You know what all these things are? Food, shelter, and clothes. That's it. According to Matthew 6, if you get this, if you know where your next meal, the next, let's do it the way it's described there. If you know where the next two meals are coming from, And if you know what you're going to wear tomorrow. And you have a place to sleep tonight. And you're sure of that. If you have those three things. You know what Jesus calls you? Wealthy. Wealthy. Because all of us are in here right now are thinking. Yeah, I know those wealthy people. Those rascal wealthy people. Not me, but the people who have more money than me. Those are the wealthy people. Let's go to your closet, let's go to the cupboard. Where are you going to stay tonight? Seek God in His kingdom, and those things are added to you, and that, according to Jesus, that's enough. Let me ask you again, what do you have that money cannot buy and death cannot take away? What's the real answer to that question? It's Christ, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Solomon is going to tell us here in a couple chapters something I want to this is meant to be read in one sitting, so let me give you a little uh, preview. He is going to say he has actually said, having money from, from your labor is reward that's a, that's a fine thing. There's nothing wrong with having money. there's nothing wrong with spending money. There's nothing wrong with spending money on yourself for things as long as those don't represent idolatry in our hearts. And we know that they Are idolatrous in our heart by seeing if they have negative impact when they are lost, damaged, stolen, or if we cannot or would not give them away. Here's what I learned about myself from this study. I knew this about myself before this. I am a materialist. Boy, I like stuff. I probably don't like the same stuff you like, but there's stuff I like. You get all those catalogs at your house. Why do we get, I mean, can't you just send one catalog for the year? When I grew up, we had a JCPenney catalog that came once a year at Christmas time. We, I knew what every page was of that, every toy, I knew it all. And you got a catalog a year. Remember those days? I get a catalog three times a week from the same store. And it's designed to hold that carrot out and say, you're not satisfied, you want more, you want this, you want that. How many golfers do we have? Just a few golfers. Man, golf is, is even worse. Because what you had last year that was the biggest and best and greatest is now out of vogue. And now you need the biggest and best and greatest now. Listen. If you have problems with your golf game, it's probably not the arrow, it's probably the Indian It's not the equipment. It's the problem. Where do we go with this? He doesn't say anywhere in this chapter that wealth is bad. He does say if you're without God, wealth will control you. And the implication is if you are with God, you will control your wealth. This isn't the sermon where you go sell all you have and give to the poor and go live in a monastery. This is where you check your heart. Am I willing to serve with my money, give with, with my money, give my, my, my possessions away? It's not just money, it's also using your home, using your car. What, uh, we had a, a team of um, those, those um, Belarusian singers come through that choir a few weeks ago, and you know what I was so encouraged by our church? We had more volunteers to put those people up than we had people who could stay at their houses. That's encouraging. Whatever you have, great, use it for the Lord.